Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Jane Koston, and this is The Argument. Today, I'm talking to two progressives about Biden's first 100 days, one who's impressed by Biden's term so far and has high hopes, and one who would give him an F. A president's first 100 days are considered a major milestone. It's a window of time that matters, a first impression. It's also a chance to get big stuff done before the honeymoon has worn off. FDR rolled out transformative legislation that became part of his New Deal. LBJ launched a war on poverty. Biden got a nearly $2 trillion relief bill passed on day 50. But the jury's out on whether he's done enough, whether he's done the right thing, and whether what he's done is a sign of what's to come. My guests disagree with each other on all of the above. Osita Waneva is a writer for The New Republic, and Anand Giridardas writes the Inc. newsletter and is the author of Winners Take All. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Both of you wrote pieces analyzing Biden's first 100 days. Both of your pieces have very different takes, and I think the headlines say a lot. Osita, yours was, Joe Biden isn't close to being historic president yet, and that's in the New Republic. Anand, you wrote, quote, welcome to the new progressive era in the Atlantic. So, Anand, I'll start with you. What do you lay out in the piece? I would say I agree with both of those headlines and very much agree with Osita's also. And and so here's how I would square it. I didn't say welcome to the progressive administration. I didn't say welcome to the progressive transformational president. I said welcome to the new progressive era. What I fundamentally think has happened is that over a period of years, a bunch of the chronic issues in this country around wealth and income inequality, around the death of the American dream for growing numbers of people, the failure to solve our biggest shared problems, the crashing and burning of the neoliberal order and the belief in it has rung a death knell for the intellectual consensus, political consensus of the last 40 years, the Reagan consensus. And Joe Biden, irony of ironies, someone who is a centrist, moderate Democrat, someone who embodied in his career that consensus as a Democrat, happened to win in a moment in which those ideas were falling out of favor. And so I think there's this funny and strange coming together of a man, a movement, and a moment. A man who doesn't quite fit that movement and a moment that has perhaps given him no choice but to accommodate himself to it. And I think the one thing you can give him tremendous credit for is unlike a lot of us who struggle to change our mind when we're wrong or when we're left behind by history, he has adapted himself to this and I think made peace with it and has begun to operate outside that market fundamentalist consensus, begun to make a muscular case for the usefulness of government in a way that a lot of prior Democrats have just been too scared to do. And I think we also see now in some of the Build Back Better stuff, you know, focus on systemic racism in the infrastructure thing, not just let's build a bunch of roads, but a kind of lens for systemic racism, a lens on climate 
in this infrastructure stuff. I talked to some of the more radical climate activists out there. They don't think he's where they are. They think he's more persuadable, more respectful of their views, more amenable to going where they want to go than anyone they've ever dealt with. I think Bernie Sanders, you talk to people around Bernie Sanders, I don't think Bernie in his late 70s has ever felt as listened to by any administration in his lifetime as he's felt by this one. It's certainly not everything, and it's definitely not enough. I wouldn't even say it's a lot, but it is something. Osira, are you willing to give Biden as much credit in this moment? Well, you know, I think that Biden certainly has accomplishments he can stick his name on that he should be proud of as president already. I think the rescue plan was a serious piece of legislation that really did, in the ways that Anand said, break away from some of the priors, some of the old habits of mind about how government should intervene in the economy. I mean, you had our generous cash payments. You had really path-breaking expansion of the child tax credit to expanding Obamacare subsidies. And there was a lot of good stuff in that package. We have now another package put forward with pre-K and universal community college and pay leave. And, you know, he's putting forward, I think, legislation that is important, that is meaningful, that is going to change lives. But, you know, when I wrote that piece, and it was in response to seeing pieces all over the place, I'm not going to single anybody out, where all these comparisons were being made to Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal and the transformations of the economy that we saw in response to the Great Depression. And it just struck me that less than 100 days in, we had not seen evidence that Joe Biden was Franklin Roosevelt. That didn't really seem to be a rational understanding of what had gone through Congress, the situation in the Senate. It did not seem to be moored to any particular reality. Right. But Biden was being praised for proposing infrastructure bill that's not passed yet. And we don't know what final form it's going to take. It's just, it's not a realistic comparison. And so I, I tried to work through in that piece why it was that people felt compelled to sort of draw the historical illusion. Because I think we can recognize certain shifts, but this country is facing a lot of deep-seated challenges, challenges that are going to come to the fore once the coronavirus pandemic sort of abates. And it's still not really very clear to me how deeply Joe Biden understands them and how deeply he's going to be able to address them given the constraints that he's facing in Washington. I, I think that there are reasons for if not pessimism, then a kind of restraint in praise as meaningful as the expansions of the welfare state are. We're already seeing places where the administration is dialing back in the new American Families Plan, things like the child tax credit, which really was a path-breaking provision within the rescue plan. But the administration said that it hoped to make that tax credit permanent. It's not being made permanent. It's being extended until 2025. So the most path-breaking part of the rescue plan doesn't seem like it's going to last. And I just think that people should have an understanding of where we actually are that isn't rooted in a kind of emotional need to think that FDR has come to save us. I don't think that's actually where we're at. Part of this is that we don't have an example of what a progressive activist president really looks like that's successful. People look back to LBJ, but obviously LBJ's presidency ended with the utter failings of the Vietnam War. But Anand, I wanted to ask you, you spoke to a lot of progressive activists who seemed willing to give Biden the credit here. What were they saying about what dealing with this administration was like? There were several things that struck me. And one theme was consultation. I spoke to Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, who felt that there was a 
receptivity to some of the ideas she and the Congressional Progressive Caucus put out during the transition period that they saw reflected in the rescue plan. That surprised her. I spoke to Richard Trumka, head of the AFL-CIO, who said very strikingly, I'll tell you the difference between this administration and past administrations. You know, past administrations used to call you to tell you what the policy is. This one calls you to, you know, consult about what it should be. And there was also, I think, a feeling that for good or ill, that Joe Biden is just a different kind of leader who's less of a singular figure, who frankly has not read the way you think of a Bill Clinton or Obama having read 50 books for every decision that they made. He's just, that's just not him. He's a fundamentally coalitional politician. And what that means in practice, as a lot of people said to me, is he's very happy to have his policy be the sum of what his coalition wants his policy to be. Osita, what do you think? Because you mentioned in your piece that there has been this rising wave of progressive activists who have been very quick to challenge this administration, and a lot of their challenges have been heard. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, there's this question of, like, you know, are progressives surprised by how things have gone? Speaking only for myself, I'm not really, because I, I saw the Democratic primary, right? I mean, we saw over the course of the primary, not just Biden, but a number of candidates who would have been considered moderates or close to moderate, proposed a lot of great ideas that were substantially to the left of the Obama administration for a number of reasons. I think that, for one thing, it became obvious even to economists who were not far left that the prevailing assumptions about the national debt and austerity that governed the early Obama administration, those assumptions had been wrong. You can just see that in data. Then the other thing is that we've seen over the past decade or so the collapse of the idea that the Republican Party is a meaningful governing partner, right? I think a lot of Democrats who had that assumption were really shaken by the Trump administration. And so you have people who are not taken for granted the idea that you're going to get support for reasonable policies from the other side. I think Jordan Weissman at Slate tweeted the other day, you know, why are people so shocked by the fact that Biden's raising the capital gains taxes? Didn't people know that he made that promise during the primary? Weren't people paying attention? The answer is no. People were not paying attention because the campaign was not fundamentally about, to most people, it was about restoring the soul of the country, right? And so now people are thinking about policy for the first time. And if you haven't been paying attention, some of the things that are happening now in the administration seem like they are paving new ground. I think really we can extrapolate now a sense of what historians 100 150 years from now, if we're still lucky enough to have historians kicking around, are going to say that this is a political moment where it's become quite obvious that our political institutions are no longer tenable. The United States Senate is a problem. That is a problem that the House has not expanded since 1911. That is a problem that the Supreme Court and our judiciary has been dominated by conservatives who are going to constrain Biden's executive agenda if it comes to the point where he decides that Congress is a no-go for most of his policies. And frankly, so far, I think Biden gets an F there. I, I don't think he has addressed seriously the immediate strategic challenges he's going to face in the Senate getting most of his agenda through, but also this fundamental question of whether the United States can still be called a democracy with its institutions in the state that they're in. And then the second is going to be climate change. If it is the case that Biden can't actually get most of his agenda passed, then we're not going to see a whole lot of climate legislation come through Congress. Uh, I think it's notable that the biggest things that Biden is getting credit for are provisions, policies that were sold as pandemic relief, that were sold as temporary responses to an unprecedented crisis. If it is true that all of them should represent to us instead a fundamental break from new liberal economics and the economic prevailing assumptions that have governed policy for the last 40 years, 
That'd be great, but we haven't really heard that from Joe Biden himself, right? Joe Biden is not somebody who is selling this to Congress or to the American people as a fundamental shift in how we should think government should work. I, I want to call out something to both of you, because I think the challenge here, and I, I want you to push back at me, it would be fun, is that there is a view of this administration that is very much the hundred yard view where people are like, I got checks. That's cool. Seems like the economy is opening up again. That's cool. I can get a job or I'm able to get back to work. That's great. And they are not thinking about this in the terms of progressive politics. And in fact, Biden won, in my view, because he wasn't one of those other candidates. He wasn't Bernie Sanders. He wasn't a candidate who purported to be pushing a progressive agenda, he was, as Osita noted, attempting to restore the soul of America. And so how much of this is something that Biden needs to do for progressives? And how much of it is something that Biden needs to do for the American people writ large? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a very good question. I think there is simply a set of problems right now in this country that are not going to be solved by small solutions and are not going to be solved by the types of things that Presidents Obama and Clinton generally gravitated to in their approach. So I don't think about this as progressive versus centrist. I, I think that actually turns off voters as, I mean, it, it's fine for we us to talk about that in this podcast, but I think this is about like, are you showing up to solve problems at the scale that the problems are, or are you content going into the sunset of history, having you know, solved like 3% of the problems that there are? Like, do you want to be relevant or irrelevant? Like, that's a much more useful political label than that. And when I talk to folks in this administration, I think they've been educated by the moment to realize that if they don't go bigger than probably was his prior intention at some moment in his life, they just won't be that significant. Like, they won't go down well. And that, that motivation is fine with me. Osita, I want to put this to you. How much, in your view, is the current perspective on Joe Biden shaped by the incredibly low bar of the Trump presidency? Oh, I think that that shapes most of it. I think most Democratic voters are, are very happy with the Biden presidency, and they're going to be pretty happy with it no matter what happens for that very reason. He's not Donald Trump. So the question really isn't whether Biden needs to do X or Y to satisfy the Democratic electorate, even the broad electorate. I mean, he's pretty popular now from the approval ratings that I've seen. The question is just sort of objectively, as Anand said, like, is he offering solutions that are actually going to like empirically solve the problems the country is facing right now? It might not be the case that Democratic voters are itching to see an end to partisan gerrymandering. You know, they're not craving that. They're not going to bed at night worried about whether or not the provisions of the For the People Act advance, even though they might support them kind of notionally. Democratic voters aren't going to be cross with Biden for the most part if that stuff didn't happen, but there are things that need to happen. And I just do not really see a pathway for a lot of that stuff to happen on the current trajectory the administration is on. I mean, the administration to me seems kind of rudderless. And this is one of the things that makes the FDR comparison seem strange to me. I mean, yes, there is a boldness about the kinds of things that they're willing to spend money on. But for everything else, the strategy, as best as I can tell, is propose this, see it pass the House, and just sort of wait and see what happens. Sort of kick the can on the filibuster 
down the road until a moment of truth and just sort of hope that the content of the legislation on the table will be compelling enough to actually initiate that change when the moment comes. Hi, Jane. This is Kate from Columbus and Detroit, and I've been arguing with everyone about why we need to implement a federal job guarantee. At the heart of this is really an argument about who gets access to credit and jobs. Similar to the Federal Reserve, a job guarantee could serve as the employer of last resort so that everyone has a job. Thank you so much. What are you arguing about? With your family? Your friends? Your frenemies? Tell me about the big debate you're having in a voicemail by calling 347-915-4324. And we might play an excerpt of it on a future episode. If you had more time in the day, would you take a nap, read a book, talk with a friend? When something's important to you, it's easier to make time for it. Therapy can help you decide what matters most. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on your schedule. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com opinion today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com opinion. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love spelling bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. Anand, I wanted to ask you, because Osita described this administration as being directionless, but I think that you've argued or think that that in some ways can be positive. That means that he can be, this administration can be directed. You know, I I think the rudderlessness that Osita was talking about is, again, like a lot of human traits, both problematic and there's some opportunity in it for some people. You know, both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were the smartest people in every room they were ever in in their lifetimes and had read more books about whatever issue in question. And were they were both stars also. They were young. They were phenoms in different ways. They, you know, they were charismatic. Like it was about this. They were the protagonist of the political story. And whether that amounts to a clear political rudder or not, I think it actually made them not particularly persuadable in a certain way, because the position, and this you, you get this in Obama's book, interestingly, like whatever he didn't do or did do or didn't go far enough, like it's not that he was kind of a wisp in the wind. Like he had thought very, he thought very, very deeply about how much he wanted to do in 2009. And it was a really considered, in my view, inadequate response that he really deeply thought about. And you couldn't, you couldn't tip it over with a light push. Like the guy had really, really thought about his approach on everything. I think Biden, again, is just not like that. And I've heard that from so many of the people who've tried to lobby him on some of these things. AOC had that great line about like, it will be my privilege to lobby this administration. I think he's lobbyable. I think there's this sense, you know, a couple of people use this metaphor to me of the machine politician, that Biden's a throwback to a kind of earlier democratic machine politician where you know, almost like a prime minister in a coalitional government where he sees himself as like the kind of figurehead of his factions. And in a way that gives each faction some 
influence, some right to be heard in a way that is just different when you're a singular star and you kind of take all the oxygen out of the room by being this singular star. Again, it all comes down to whether he's going to want to use that to do these big things or not. And Biden, if he has one political skill above others, I think in those rare moments where he does go bigger and bolder and where he does go in that more progressive direction or whatever you want to call it, he never makes it sound like he's doing that. I think there's this quality of, I called him the kind of reasonableizer in the piece. But when he talks about a bold climate goal, he somehow has this skill at just making it sound like this like folksy American obvious thing to do. And, and there's something very banal about it, but I think it actually works in disarming some of the culture war stuff that has tended to happen around every issue. Once an issue goes into that culture war place, it's very, very hard to pull it back out. I do think, though, that there is another side of that. I think that a president who is constantly talking about the need for consensus, a president who is talking about the need for bipartisanship, and even if he does ultimately go in a partisan direction on a reconciliation bill, we'll preface that with sort of overtures to the Republican Party. I think that presentation of how politics ought to work is something that substantively constrains efforts to reform our political institutions, right? You are never going to get the American people to a place where they understand the Senate is a problem if you are also telling them the way policy has to work is that you get people on both sides of the aisle to work together and you don't do anything that offends the Republican Party. Like, that's not going to produce democratic reform. In fact, it's going to, <laughs> it's going to be a case against democratic reform. And so that's, that's the real challenge here. Like you can understand why Biden's approach might be politically savvy. But I think that at certain points, a president, maybe not Biden, probably after Biden will be too late. But at certain point, political leaders in this country need to sort of level with the American people, on the Democratic side at least. I don't expect this from Republicans. But Democratic leaders need to level with the American people and say, look, consensus is great when it happens. But ultimately, the institutions that we've built and sustained on the grounds that they produce consensus are actually deeply repressive and they're going to destroy this country if we don't fix them. From that perspective, I, I just I don't know how you can evaluate the presidency as we've seen it so far, anything but kind of negatively. And maybe Biden changes over the course of the next year as it becomes more and more obvious that his agenda is going to have difficulty passing. But I just think that there's a real... Is that part of your effort here? I mean, you, you've you said that you're kind of grading it negatively. You gave some aspects of the administration an F. Osita, are you trying to move this administration with a stick, if not with a carrot? I'm certainly trying to move the discourse in general in, in a better direction. Look, I think that if Biden succeeds in getting the filibuster gutted, you know, if he intervenes with Joe Manchin in a way that nobody sort of discovered how to <laughs> get Joe Manchin to change his mind. You know, I think that opens the door to really genuinely talking about a transformative presidency. I mean, that that really does open the door to a, a large number of reforms to our economy. Then you can start talking about a, a deeply historic legacy. And this is one thing that's funny to me. If you had asked people a year ago about the state of the progressive movement within the Democratic Party, conventional wisdom was, well, look, progressives are too shrill. They're too negative. They're too mean online. And all of this has constrained their capacity to meaningfully shape Democratic Party policy. It constrains their ability to win elections. A year later, 
take seems to be, well, progressives are running the Biden administration. Both of those things can't really be true. I don't think either of them are. I think, I think the truth is kind of in the middle. We didn't get here by grading democratic politicians on the curve. We, we got here by being critical, being attentive, being vigilant, calling people out, and constantly striving for an ideal, an ideal that I think we should keep in front of us at all times. I'm, you know, in a way, I'm haunted by the earlier discussion that Osita rightly raised about the political reform questions. And what haunts me is, I think it is absolutely correct that if you don't do those things, really ambitious COVID relief and even the climate stuff, like voting stuff, it's all going to be rate limited if we do, if not have a functional set of institutions that can essentially solve problems when we have problems. And I think the challenge, given Biden's nature, given his sensitivity to public opinion, where people are, given that he's not, as we might hope, a three miles ahead of public opinion guy. There are some people who are three miles ahead of public opinion. You know, Bernie Sanders is very happy to be 58 miles ahead of public opinion and be lonely for 40 years. It's just, a, it's a personality thing at some level, right? Like we all know people who don't care what anybody else thinks and right. happy to stand out there in the ice for, for 40 years. And if people come with them, great. And we know other people who are like, are you with me? Are you with me? And I think Joe Biden's much more in that latter camp. What that means to some of Osita's concerns around political reform, which I share, is how are we going to take the things that we must do for which there is not a burning political hunger the way there was for, you know, checks? People wanted those checks, thirsted for those checks, felt happy when they got those checks. What is the way to create that kind of dynamic? around some of the deeper things we have to do. And I think there are ways to think about that. You know, I think if you play your cards right, when something like the minimum wage gets blocked in the Senate, as it did because of a procedural thing, you can take a moment like that to highlight the brokenness of our system, not just weigh in on that issue, right? That's a teaching moment. That's a night to go on television, if it were me, right? And explain that, like, People are not really going to care about 50 votes, 60. It's hard to understand. It's complicated. But when you have that hanging in the balance of a bunch of people could see their paychecks go up next week, but for some arcane thing that I want to talk to you about tonight, right? You might be able to raise some of that important stuff that feels like broccoli or homework to the level of public appetite, public hunger, regular people thinking about it, it being a joke on the late night shows. I think that's going to be really important. And it's going to require a very creative pairing of the immediate issues that people feel very acutely with creatively making those connections to the political reform issues that are, whether pronounced to them or not, the real reason they're not able to have nice things. And if he's willing to make that case, great. If he's not, it's going to be very hard for him I think, to do more than just be someone who helped people in a bad plague. Thank you both so much for joining me. You did not get to hear my idea that we should get people to vote to eliminate the filibuster by giving them $2,000 checks to do that. <laughs> that's, you know, that's brilliant. That might be the like, kind of thing I was thinking about. I think yeah. I, I will never get over the fact that it was between do you want checks or do you not want checks? And people went, we want checks. And people are like, Whoa! <laughs> it turns yeah, exactly. out people like it when you send them money. Bribery gets a bad name.
Osira Waneva was a staff writer at the New Republic. Anand Giridardas is a writer and the author of, most recently, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. Thank you both so much for joining me. You can find links to Osita and Anand's articles in our episode notes. Finally, exciting news. I'm doing a live show on May 12th with Kara Swisher and Ezra Klein, my fellow opinion podcast hosts. We'll be talking about cancel culture with Farhad Manju. And I sit down with Trevor Noah, where we talk about being biracial and telling unfunny jokes. It's open to all subscribers at nytimes.com slash cancel culture. May 12th. Subscribe and come watch. The Argument is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Phoebe Lett, Eliza Gutierrez, and Vishaka Durba. Edited by Alison Brujic and Paula Schumann. With original music and sound design by Isaac Jones. Fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. And audience strategy by Shannon Busta. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.